We're going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians today uh, and uh, take this opportunity to share the story of Timothy, the biography, if you will, as it's revealed in Scripture. And so we're going to have a very short verse from 1 Corinthians as our key text, but then we're going to launch into other passages throughout the New Testament that allow us to get to know this young man, Timothy. So if you are able uh, to stand for the brief reading of God's word here today, we will read 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the riches of your word. And we thank you that in your word, you reveal the stories, the biographies of men and women of God who have walked with you faithfully. We thank you for the inspiration and the encouragement that they provide by their example. And Lord, may we see in the life of this young man, Timothy, uh, such an example that would motivate us and move us to be doers of your word and not hearers only, to be in so many wonderful ways like this young man. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we've seen last week, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth as a wise spiritual father to his beloved children. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. And so Paul's heart comes through in these passages that he sees the young Christians in Corinth as being spiritual children, and he as their spiritual father. And so in doing so, Paul exhibits 10 things that uh, a wise spiritual father can do in order to be successful in training up his spiritual children. This is what it means to make disciples, okay? And this is what Paul is doing. And so a wise spiritual father, first of all, must beget spiritual children. You've got to do the work of an evangelist. You've got to go out and share the gospel with others. And in doing so, God, by his sovereign grace, will grant faith and repentance. And those who come to Christ through the ministry of your efforts as an evangelist will be your spiritual children. And therefore, they will need to be trained and discipled, not only in the ministry of the local church, but also in their friendship and fellowship with you as they watch your example. And just as with uh, natural born children, you know, when you have a child, I don't think anything makes a young man grow up faster than having a son or daughter. I mean, it just kind of a suddenly you realize this kid is gonna be looking at me and he's gonna be seeing what I do and how I am as a, a model for himself or herself, and I need to start getting my act together. You know, get serious in my relationship with God, begin to demonstrate the kind of quality of character that I would hope to see in my sons and daughters uh, as they grow up. And so you see how God is so good in that when he allows us to be involved in leading others to Christ, it helps us to grow up in our relationship with Christ. And we all win and benefit together in that. And so a spiritual father must first beget spiritual children. And then he'll need to love them, admonish them, set a good example for them, 
teach them, occasionally deny them what they want, challenge them, be patient with them, discipline them, encourage them, and ultimately all of this works together to reproduce uh, his own life's purpose in them. Now, because of the individualism in our culture, you know, we are a, a nation that has basically decided to do away with family, to do away with church, and have nothing but just the individual standing naked before the Leviathan of government, of the state. You know, this is something that uh, uh, political philosophers have warned about, that there's this tendency for the state to uh, remove the buffering institutions that God has established so that rather than having a family to stand with you and having a church to stand with you, we find ourselves standing alone before this seemingly omnipotent government. And that's why when you, when you hear about the uh, you know, Christian worldview regarding government, uh, there is an emphasis upon these other jurisdictions of God's kingdom, both the family as well as the church that are intended to be uh, with us, walking with us through life and not leaving us just to be defenseless before the state. And so here we see that Paul's life's purpose is being reproduced in his spiritual children. Uh, he is zealous for living for the glory of God. He wants them to be zealous for living for the glory of God. Uh, he is personally zealous for sound doctrine and he wants them to also be zealous for sound doctrine. And you can see how all of this kind of is transferred from one generation, both physically and naturally, as well as spiritually, that you pass on to others the same heart, attitude of faith that you see in your spiritual parents. And, and if you're growing up in a Christian household, whether you're, where your father and mother are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is also going to be happening there as well, that you're having this imparted to you, what, what started in them is going to become a part of who you are as well. And so Paul then sends to the Corinthian church an example of what can result from being a wise and loving spiritual father. And that is his faithful spiritual son, a young man named Timothy. <clears throat> Timothy, as we're going to see, was a remarkable young man. He was an extraordinary young man. Now a loving spiritual father, as I said, reproduces his own spiritual purpose in the lives of his spiritual children. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. And immediately he makes this statement, For this reason, what reason? In order for you to imitate me. For this reason, in order for you to be able to imitate me, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. This is our key passage for the day, and this is the springboard for the story of Timothy. If you want to imitate Paul, all you have to do is watch and listen to his spiritual son, Timothy, because he has succeeded in imparting into Timothy's heart and mind and soul uh, the very same passion that the Apostle Paul has for all that is involved in being a faithful uh, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy was just like Paul in all the ways that matter. And so by looking at Timothy, you are able actually to imitate Paul and his ways. And so who was this young man? Where did he come from? And what was the context of his role in the early church 
history that we are reading. Well, the story of Timothy actually begins with another young man named John Mark, or Mark. And so we see in Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned, <clears throat> returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You know, we tend to use the name Mark as the first name, but actually John Mark's uh, name, Mark was his last name. It was his surname, like I'm Greg Harris. This is John Mark. Okay. But we tend to use the first, his, uh, his name as Mark uh, more often than we use the term John Mark, or his other name. But in Acts chapter 13, and beginning in verse 2, we read, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And notice this, they also had John as their assistant. This is John Mark as their assistant. Now, an assistant in a journey at this particular time in history was going to be doing just about whatever was needed. He's going to be carrying the luggage, right? He's going to be uh, working, you know, keeping whatever trans mode of transportation is involved. He's going to be working on keeping all that going, whether they're camels or donkeys or what. Uh, the assistant is going to be just basically doing whatever needs to be done in order to make this journey uh, uh, something that the, the older guys on the team are able to... Uh, Handle. So they're not totally uh, uncomfortable, but uh, their, their travels are assisted by this younger man who is uh, their associate. Now, John Mark was now on the adventure of a lifetime. He's in the early church. He's been asked to go with Barnabas and Saul. At this time, his name is Saul. And uh, he's probably pretty, pretty thrilled with this opportunity. Now, this is a big deal. Now, right out of the gate, John Mark gets to see the Apostle Paul in action. And we read this in Acts 13 and verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos... They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul. Now we're dealing with Sergius Paulus as the intelligent man here. And he invites Barnabas and Saul to come and preach to him the word of God. But Elymas, that's the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, this is where his name is now from this point on, we're going to refer to him as the Apostle Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this guy, uh, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, <laughs> and he said to him in a great comforting pastoral tone, <laughs> Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? How's that for a bedside manner, right? The Apostle Paul is confronting sheer evil. This man is a false prophet and Paul nails it 
as he describes him as being full of deceit. He's a fraudster. He's a son of the devil. That means he's the result of Satan's activity. He's an enemy of all righteousness. He says, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. This is not permanent blindness, but it is a temporary blindness to get the point across as to who is the greater uh, spiritual force in this confrontation. And so immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He's now blinded. Now um, imagine your young John Mark and this is your first, you know, this is the first encounter you're having here. And all of a sudden, Paul is uh, striking somebody with blindness and rebuking them for being a son of the devil. That's got to be a pretty jarring experience right there. But what happens next was too much for this young Jewish Christian to handle. In Acts 13, 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He's not just astonished at the, at the blinding of the false prophet. He's astonished at the gospel. He's astonished at the message concerning Jesus Christ, who has died for our sins, who has been raised from the dead, and now who, who reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sergius Paulus is astonished by the teaching of the Lord. Paul received Sergius Paulus into the fellowship of the church as a Gentile without requiring him to be circumcised and to start keeping the law of Moses. Now, in Acts 13, verse 13, we read, And now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Instead of going back to Antioch, where they had come from, instead John Mark heads off to Jerusalem where Peter and the other apostles were. Why would he do that? If he, could, if he just couldn't hand the rigors of travel, he would have gone back to Antioch. That was his home. But instead, he heads for Jerusalem. What's going on here is John Mark is having a spiritual doctrinal crisis. Because you see, the Judaizers had not yet been corrected. That comes in the next chapter. And so at this point in time, we've got people running around, as we see in Acts 15.1, certain men came down from Judea <clears throat> and taught the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, it was determined that Paul and Barnabas would go down or up to Jerusalem. No matter where you are, Jerusalem is always up. Okay? whether you're south or north or east or west, you go up to Jerusalem because it's the, the uh, mountain of the Lord. <clears throat> and so they went to the apostles and the elders to, to ask about this question. Again, in Acts 15 and verse 5, when they're on their way to Jerusalem, uh, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe, these are Christian Pharisees, these are Pharisees who have come to faith in Christ. And these Pharisees rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, that's speaking of the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the, the standard expectation of the Jewish Christians. If you're a Gentile and you're gonna to come to Christ, you're going to have to come to Christ through Judaism. You're going to have to become 
a circumcised, if you're a man, a circumcised man, and you're going to begin to keep the law of Moses. And if you're unwilling to do that, from their perspective, you're not really being converted to Christ. You're not coming to Jesus if you don't come through Judaism. So that's the standard position at this time. But Paul and Barnabas, having worked in Antioch for quite a few years now, realize that that is not necessary. That that is actually placing upon the Gentiles burdens that even the Jews were not able to carry. And that obviously the Holy Spirit is responding to the conversion of these Gentiles without them becoming Jewish. And so they have the council in Jerusalem. And I don't want to take all the time to go through all of that council, but I'll give you what they came up with at the end. In Acts 15 verse 28, it says, this is James speaking on behalf of the, of the elders and the, and the apostles. He says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, that means don't be eating blood, and from things strangled, which means the blood would still be in the uh, carcass of the animal, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So the council in Jerusalem decides that Paul and Barnabas are right. And there is no need to place upon the Gentiles the requirement to uh, obey all of the uh, law of Moses because it's been fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. Now remember the temple is still in Jerusalem at this time and sacrifices are still being made. And a lot of what makes up the Jewish culture and Jewish society is still operating and so there is a case that the Pharisees and the other Jews can make that God has not abandoned all of this Old Testament uh, religious uh, ritual, but rather that he's fulfilled it in Christ and that it still has a place, it still has meaning. And so there's a transitional period in which we see uh, even Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, for instance. The traditions of the Jewish community are still being practiced by the Jewish Christians. But it was not necessary to place all of this upon the backs of the new Gentile believers for whom this would all be brand new. And James tells us at one place, he says, you know, Moses is being taught in the synagogues every Sabbath. If they want to hear that, it has value and they're welcome to embrace that but it is not an obligation. It's not necessary for your salvation. It may be a benefit, which I believe it is, to know and understand and to honor what we read in the Old Testament about who God is and how he behaves and what his ways are, and all of that's communicated there. And so this was not a rejection of the Old Testament. It was not a rejection of Judaism. It was just not placing upon the Gentile believers the burden of having to be circumcised and then follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Are we clear on that? And so, evidently not all the Judaizers, those are the ones who were pushing for this Jewish version of Christianity being the only way to be saved, uh, evidently they didn't all accept this decision as final. They may not have vocalized it at the conference but later we find Paul having to do battle against them in places like Galatia. And so Paul writes to the Galatian church, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel, these, Paul is describing what happened at the Jewish council, the, the council of the apostles there in Jerusalem. He says, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, he's speaking personally, as the gospel of the, for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, that would be the Jewish people, 
also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, the uncircumcised people. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so we have the resolution of this issue at this council in Jerusalem. And Paul is explaining this to the church in Galatia. So why is he having to take so much time explaining this to the church in Galatia? Because there were Judaizers in the church of Galatia who were telling the, the uh, Christians there that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul writes in chapter 5 and verse 2 of, of the letter to the Galatians, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You can't embrace the law part way. If you're going to trust in the keeping of the law as a means of being saved, you're going to have to keep the whole thing not just being circumcised. And so Paul is warning the Christians in Galatia, the Gentile, uncircumcised Christians in Galatia, not to think that they're going to become uh, super Christians or better Christians by getting circumcised. That they are in fact free from that and do not need to be entangled in that. And if they do go down that route, they're going to have to keep the whole law, and nobody can keep the whole law perfectly. We all have to come back to the sacrifice of Christ. You know, even in the Old Testament, the truly saved and spiritual Jews, those who were true Israelites, as Paul calls them, were those who trusted not in their own works, but in the effectiveness of the sacrificial system. When that lamb was slain every year as the Passover lamb, and they put their trust in the fact that their sins were forgiven because of that sacrifice, those were the Jews who were actually coming to God by faith in his mercy and grace. And those Jews who were saying, well, I keep the law, you know, I don't even need that lamb to be sacrificed for me, they were lost. And so we find ourselves seeing the, the, the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that was the connection right there. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice. And because of what he did for us, there is no longer any need for any annual Passover sacrifice. But as long as the temple remained and the Jewish culture continued, it was easy to, to slip back into putting your trust in the lamb and the other sacrifices that were made in the temple. This is important to the story of Timothy. The Judaizers were not the only heretics that Paul had to contend with. There were also the Gnostics. There were, those were in the church in Colossia. There were the Libertines. These are people who taught that you could just do whatever you want because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can go have fun. These are called Libertines. And then there were the false prophets, and there were various other false teachers. And Paul is constantly engaging with these people and refuting them. He's not ignoring them. He doesn't say, well, that's their business if they want to teach that. Paul is zealous for contending for the faith that was once delivered to the church. Now the question is, is this why Paul rejected Mark? as he did. Notice what happens in Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. Now remember, we've just had the Jewish, the, the, the uh, apostolic council in Jerusalem. 
They have resolved the issue of the Judaizers and, and rebuked them and said, no, you don't have to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Then after some days, Paul and Barnabas said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now there's a detail here. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, we're filled in on the fact that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Okay, so there's a little family unity here. But Paul insisted that they should not take him with them, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. John Mark, I'm, I'm being tentative here because we don't know for certain, okay? It may be that he was a wimp and he couldn't carry the luggage. And he didn't like doing, you know, being bossed around by these guys. But I think it's more likely in the historical context that John Mark, being a faithful Jewish Christian, was concerned that Paul was allowing a Gentile to come into the church without being circumcised, without uh, keeping the law of Moses, and that John Mark had a crisis of his faith and headed for Jerusalem to consult with, the, with Peter and the other apostles about whether or not the apostle Paul was overstepping his authority in allowing Gentiles into the church without converting to Judaism. If that's the case, then Paul's refusal to let John Mark come with them on this trip may have been based on John Mark still perhaps not being quite sure about accepting Gentiles. He may not be somebody they can rely on on this particular issue. And so, in Acts 15 to 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. I can't imagine this being such an issue for Paul if it was just that uh, John Mark uh, didn't stick with him. I think he not only didn't stick with him, his heart was not with them on this issue yet. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. That's the very place where the abandonment took place. It was on the Isle of Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. From this point on, Luke follows the trail of the Apostle Paul. And we hear nothing more about Barnabas and Mark in the book of Acts, okay? So I leave it to you to decide whether or not uh, this is uh, what actually happened. But it seems to make sense to me that John Mark was unreliable at this doctrinal level rather than simply not being faithful to stick out the, ardor, the, the uh, ardor's journey. Paul and Silas would now need someone to assist them on their missionary journey. So who might that be? This is what brings us to the story of Timothy. John Mark's replacement was already in training. In Acts 16 and verse one we read, then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. What's going on here? 
Well, let's keep reading. And so as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep. This is the council in Jerusalem, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, evidently, Timothy's father was not a believer. Timothy had been raised by his godly Christian mother and grandmother, as we're going to see. Now, why was Timothy circumcised by Paul? If it's not necessary for the Gentiles to become circumcised, why would Paul circumcise Timothy? Well, the answer is because Timothy's mother was Jewish. And by the Jewish way of reckoning the family line, it comes through the mother. And so as uh, a young Jewish boy, Paul felt that it would avoid confusion and controversy. Because what's the issue? He's going through the Mediterranean area announcing that the church council in Jerusalem had decided that Gentiles are not necessarily going to have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So what we have here is a situation where Paul decides that it's expedient, and I'm sure this was, Timothy agreed to this, it was not compulsory, agreed to this, and so he was circumcised so it would not be an issue. They would just be able to go out and begin to make the announcement of what the council in Jerusalem had decided and not say, wait a minute, isn't Timothy Jewish? Is he circumcised? Paul didn't want that to be an issue, and so he circumcised Timothy himself. Now, let's look at Timothy's situation in his family. God is able to work through hard childhood family situations to accomplish his will. It's not easy growing up in a family where there is a disagreement on what the truth is concerning your faith. You know, you see all kinds of uh, mixed uh, marriages where you have a, a Catholic a wife and a, and a Protestant Presbyterian husband and these two you know when you're in love and you're young and you if you don't talk about these things it doesn't feel like such a big deal but then the first child is born and the question is how and where is he going to be baptized and that's when these issues start to come to the surface and you find out who cares dearly about these issues and wants to continue in their particular uh, faith. And so Timothy's growing up in a household in which his father is a Greek. Now, we don't get any more detail than that, but it could be that his father was worshiping all the, in the pagan gods of the day, that he was a, you know, an enthusiastic supporter of the local uh, pagan deities and the temples. And his mother was a Christian, and his grandmother was also a Christian. And it's these two women who discipled young Timothy and brought him to the place that he was when Paul arrived. Paul writes in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I recall or call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice and I am persuaded is in you also. Do you see what's happened here? Paul is thanking God for a young man who came out of a, a family situation in which there possibly was tremendous conflict and Timothy was discipled in his faith in Jesus by his grandmother. Grandmothers, listen up. You have a part to play in the lives of your grandchildren. Mothers, 
Listen up. You have a part to play in the raising up of your children in the Christian faith. This does not have to be done in a way that causes the marriage to break up. We don't have any evidence that this family broke up, but we do see a mother and a grandmother, I think of them as a tag team, sowing the word of God into the heart of young Timothy. And they succeeded. Second Timothy chapter three and verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now you might think that Paul was referring to himself and his ministry of the gospel in the life of Timothy, but no, he says, which, and that from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was a product of the ministry of the Holy Spirit through a mother and a grandmother team who taught him the word of God as a child. Timothy went on to become one of the greatest Christian leaders in all of church history. Most of us do not realize, unless we've studied the life of Timothy carefully, we do not realize how much we owe to Timothy. Paul came to, to depend on young Timothy as his personal representative to the new churches. 1 Corinthians 16.10, And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I do. Therefore, let no one despise him. Do you realize how hard it would be for a young man to show up and he's representing the Apostle Paul and a lot of the people he's talking to are much older than he is? I think that's why Paul had to advise Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. I think this was really hard to do. He's showing up and he's having to tell older men uh, this is what the Paul, uh, Apostle Paul uh, would say if he were here about this situation. And, and I, know, I know what he would say, so trust me on this. And so here's Timothy doing this work. He says, therefore, let no one despise him. Don't ignore Timothy. Don't say, ah, he's just his sidekick. No, he's not. He's so much like the Apostle Paul, he can answer questions the way the Apostle Paul would answer them. That's what we're talking about. That's what Timothy was like. But send him on his way in peace that he may come to me for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. Timothy was a very important part of the team. Not just a, not just a gopher. He's not just carrying luggage now. He is a coworker with the apostle Paul in the ministry of the gospel. First Thessalonians chapter three and verse one. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In the midst of persecution, the apostle Paul sends Timothy to strengthen and encourage the churches in the very way that Paul would do if he were there. Timothy became the spiritual son that the apostle Paul could count on even when times became very difficult. Timothy was Paul's most trusted confidant during his battles with false doctrine. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan that they may learn not 
to blaspheme. Now, Timothy has been given this responsibility. He's with Paul, and Paul, just like he did with uh, Bar-Jesus there when Sergius Paulus was coming to Christ, you know, Paul's confronting people who are uh, in error, and, and he's referring to Hymenaeus and Alexander in this regard. Now, when we read this phrase, I delivered to Satan, we have a tendency to jump to the conclusion that he's sending them to hell. That he's somehow just, that they're unsaved, turned over to Satan, and that's the end of them. But it's not true. It's important that you realize that's not true. He's doing this that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's intent was to teach, not to condemn these men. Because he, he acknowledges that they are Christians. These are men who are influential within the church. They are wrong. Their doctrine is wrong. They need to be rebuked. And they need to be turned over to Satan so Satan can work over them a little bit and teach them not to blaspheme God. And we see the same thing happen in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan. For what? For the destruction of the flesh. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see what's going on here? This is not being sent to hell. This is being put into a situation where you learn something. Paul's intent was always that the sinning Christian, not the Christian sinner, that the sinning Christian spirit may be saved in the day that Christ returns. We're not dealing with people losing their salvation just because they come under the discipline of the Lord. We're dealing with people who are learning hard, painful lessons and still going to be with the Lord forever in heaven. Church leaders at this time in history were straying from the faith. Acts chapter 20 and verse 30 tells us also, this is Paul speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And he says to them, also from among yourselves as elders, men will rise up speaking perverse things, that means distorted doctrine, to draw disciples, the disciples, away after themselves. Now think about this for a minute. We've got someone who's an elder in the church. They didn't become an elder easily. They've gone through a process of being vetted, being interviewed, uh, being prayed over, being set into place. They're now an elder in the church. I don't think it's fair to say, but they're not saved. <laughs> no, they are saved. They're Christians but they also have their carnal flesh that they have to deal with. And in their carnality, they begin to speak perverse things with the intent of drawing away the disciples after themselves. You can do that as a Christian, it's wrong. And it may involve you being disciplined by the Lord in order to get you to come to your senses and stop it. Second Peter chapter two and verse one, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now notice this next phrase. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Jesus, Jesus didn't buy all the unbelievers. He bought the believers. These men are believers. And in doing what they're doing, they bring upon themselves swift destruction. That's being turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that they may learn not to blaspheme, to learn not to have immoral sex. So we have to be careful not to jump to the conclusions. There's a joke that some people, the only exercise they get is jumping to conclusions. Okay, don't jump to conclusions that people are lost just because they're wrong about something. And I've seen this happen in church after church where people turn on one another and want to declare one another to be unsaved when the fact is that 
they're simply wrong about something, about a doctrine, about an issue, and they need to be dealt with biblically. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18. Who have strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. We may not know. We cannot read people's hearts, but the Lord knows who are his, and he deals with those who are his as his children. And God spanks his children, okay? He's not intimidated by the liberals, okay? He spanks his children in order to bring them into the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God deals with his kids in such a way as to whip them into shape and get them to walk on the true path. Now... Even a born-again elder of a church can become a false teacher. That's the point that we need to understand. And that's what Paul was dealing with. He's not just dealing with some marginal element at the back of the congregation who has some idea about uh, the resurrection. He's dealing with people at the front of the church, even in the pulpit itself, teaching that the resurrection is already past. And Paul is having to refute this with all his might in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's hard, it's difficult. And in many cases, the Apostle Paul lost the battle. In many churches, they didn't go his way. But he did not lose the war, okay? He lost the battle, but he didn't lose the war. He won the war. Let's take a look. Second Timothy chapter one and verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Now let me read that to you again. That all those in Asia have turned away from me. Think of all the churches in Asia Minor that Paul planted. And at this point in 2 Timothy, his last letter, he's telling Timothy, all those in Asia have turned away from me. Paul is losing the battle on some of these doctrinal issues. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is pleading with Timothy not to stray from the truth, not to abandon Paul and take the side of those who are in error. Second Timothy chapter three and verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions. Timothy, you've been there. You've watched. You've been through it with me. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, probably the saddest verse in the life of the Apostle Paul. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Christians for Galatia. Titus? Titus? For Dalmatia. These people are forsaking Paul. Paul is losing 
the war. No, he's losing the battle. He's losing the battle, not the war. And then this last word in chapter 2 or chapter 4 and verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. You know, we've been through a, a hard week this last week in the national elections. There were five, no, six elections, different states. Most of them had something to do with abortion. And the pro-life side lost five out of six of those elections. And, you've, and, and those of you who care about the, the unborn child, do you, you, you probably had this sense of despair when you heard the news that five out of six of these important elections went to the side of abortion, pro-abortion, and that this is being viewed as a bellwether for the, the 2024 presidential election and all the other elections that take place all over the country and, and the concern that so many of those races, state by state, are going to fall to the pro-abortion side. Think of the, the frustration and the, the despair. Now, magnify that a thousand times as the Apostle Paul is watching church after church after church vote for the other side. And he writes to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, hold on. <laughs> it's not over. Hold on, Timothy. Yes, these other men, men that I had counted on, have walked away for the moment. Only Luke is with me at this moment. But God has stood by my side. Paul died in A.D. 65. Having perhaps lost the battle, churches abandoning his position, discarding his letters, saying he was too extreme, that his gospel was was too generous, too free, too sovereign. But when the temple was destroyed by the Romans five years later, Paul won the war. When there was no longer any temple sacrifice for the Judaizers to point to, when Jerusalem itself had been sacked and burned, suddenly there's a renewed interest in the letters of the Apostle Paul. He died trusting that God is somehow going to pull this thing out of the ruins. And God did. And most likely it was Timothy who kept the faith. Second Timothy verse, chapter 3 and verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. This is Paul, he's not just saying this is what I think might happen, he's prophesying. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Second Timothy chapter four, verse one, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. When you start a sentence like that, you better pay attention because what's coming next is a history-making, earth-shaking, heaven-glorifying charge. Preach the word. 
I charge you, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Right now we're out of season, but we're going to be in season again. And I want you to preach the word whether we're in season or out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come, again, here's a prophecy. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who are they? We like to think, oh, that's talking about the liberal churches today. No, Paul's talking about church leaders in his own day. They will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because of church politics and other motivations, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers to teach them what they want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And he did. Timothy's faithfulness may have rescued the church from error. It may very well have been Timothy who kept all of Paul's letters ready for that point in the future in which everyone was going to want to read them again. Paul and Timothy made a great father and son team. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19 and verse 22, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know of your state. Now listen to this. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Paul was a loving spiritual father to Timothy. And Timothy was Paul's faithful spiritual son. And what a wonderful spiritual son he was. In 1 Corinthians, again, our, our key passage for today. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, and he stayed true to Paul and Paul's gospel, even when others were straying away from the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Oh, and get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he's useful to me for ministry. John Mark. Get Mark. Isn't it wonderful to know that even though these false teachers were too strong to be resisted for a season, in the end, both Timothy and John Mark were at Paul's side, and because of them, we have Paul's letters, and we have Mark's gospels, gospel in our Bibles. We serve a God who is sovereign over all things, and we have no need to be in despair because our God is able to arise and do things that are beyond anything we could ask or think. We do not know, as we stand here today, what the future will hold for some of the issues that we care deeply about. But I want you to know that God is still God. That Jesus is on the throne. Whatever he chooses to do, he does it because he's a sovereign Lord. 
I grieve and I, I pray for my country because I realize that we are setting ourselves up for a fall. We're setting ourselves up for the judgment of God upon our nation. Those who confess themselves to be wise become fools. And we seem to be doing that left and right. I pray that God will bring revival and repentance and that we'll be renewed as a nation. But even if he doesn't, even if we all go to our graves like Paul, not knowing which way things are going to go, our God is still sovereign and he rules over all things and he will be glorified and we have no need to be afraid of that future. I hope that as you ponder the story of Timothy, you'll examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. You'll look closely for evidence of grace in your life. But I also want you to consider the example of Timothy and strive to be like him by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, that you would have the same zeal for sound doctrine that Timothy and Paul had, and that our Lord Jesus will be pleased when he sees that zeal in your life. We are living in a very interesting time in history. And I think the example of Timothy in his faithfulness, even when it looked like battle after battle was being lost, he continued to be faithful. And by his faithfulness, we have all been blessed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, and I pray you'd use what we've seen in your word today to inspire and to motivate us to live for your glory, regardless of whether we seem to be winning or losing in one battle or another. Lord, be glorified. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, even in the face of conflict, and to know that you already see the end from the beginning. And if you have commanded it, then you will bless it, and we will be glad that we obeyed. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.